Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. The past week has been a shock for Afghanistan and the world watching. In a matter of days, the Taliban took over regional capitals one by one, entering Kabul on Sunday, August 15th. How could this have happened? Was it foreseeable and preventable? Research professor Christian Bagharpviken shares some initial thoughts on today's episode. Christian has researched Afghanistan for decades. He's a former PRIO director and currently leads the PRIO Middle East Center. Hi, Christian. Hi, Indigo. So we're recording on Monday, August 16th. I think it's the 16th. Sounds about right. I'm on on vacation, so I'm not obliged to know these things. Yeah, you're not doing a very good job of being on vacation, I must say. Um, Thanks so much for joining me on rather short notice. And you've been talking to a lot of people the last couple days um, as things have developed extremely rapidly in Afghanistan. So we thought we would just record a pretty quick podcast. Um, We're not going to go super in-depth. We hope to do that later. And uh, we'd like to acknowledge that it's just the two of us talking today, so it's certainly not a, a diverse group of voices, and we'd really like to include um, Afghan voices in the future. Um, but for now, this is just a very quick response or, uh, to the situation that's happening. Good. I'm glad you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll release this right away, but we don't know. I mean, what could happen in the next hour, days, um, so we'll get this out as quickly as possible. But as things are right now, uh, the Taliban is in Kabul. Um, the situation is very, very chaotic. And I think a lot of people are asking, how could this rapid capitulation have happened? No, I think that came as a big shock to virtually every observer of Afghan events and came as a big shock to most Afghans, possibly as a shock even to the Taliban themselves. Although they had planned for this, it probably happened much more quickly and with less effort than they had imagined. I think the main explanation for this really is that the um, outgoing government had lost a lot of support. It had lost its legitimacy, uh, partly because of misconduct, but also to a large extent because of corruption. Think of yourself as an Afghan soldier putting your life on the line, and you're running out of bullets, and you know the reason you're running out of bullets and can't defend yourself is the fact that the money has been appropriated by somebody higher up who's um, buying expensive housing and properties in Dubai or London. Right. And I mean, there have been stories, especially the last couple of days of um, journalists who are talking to police officers and soldiers who say that they haven't been paid for months. Some of them don't have food. They don't have water. um, They don't have the supplies that they need to fight. And the Taliban has been offering them money. um, and, And so, of course, they're going to take it. But how could the international community... And the Afghan government not have seen this coming. Well, the thing is, many people saw it come. Uh, Many people saw the weaknesses. But uh, leadership in Afghanistan and leadership in most allied countries didn't want to acknowledge it. So if you look at uh, what's come out of intelligence report, and of course much of that is secret, but what's come out in in the open media... The warnings were there, and not the least the uh, U.S. uh, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, which is a big office uh, following uh, the the expenditure of uh, of resources, U.S. resources in Afghanistan, 
have been crying out loud about uh, the extent to which the Afghan army really isn't what it is presented as. Even so, uh, there was no will to acknowledge that. Uh, just a few weeks back, you'd have Joe Biden, the president of the United States, saying that this is a strong army, 300,000 people against a ragtrag army of 75,000 Taliban. Uh, no problem. Uh, and, you know, it uh, it was just a marriage. It just fell apart. Yeah, I mean, I was also thinking of exactly that, that speech by President Biden. Um, I think it was on July 8th where he said it was unlikely that the Taliban would take over the country in the next few weeks, months, or possibly even years. And that's exactly what happened. So was this all just kind of a, an optimistic front? Or, I mean, why were the messages... As you're saying, perhaps the signs were there, but the messaging was very different. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people understood that the Taliban were in a position to uh, to get into power in the country. Uh, a lot of people would think that they would have to negotiate their way politically and therefore also compromise with other actors. No, we know that th- that didn't happen. Even those who thought that the Taliban would eventually be able to monopolize power, as they have now done through a full victory, uh, thought that that would take time. And of course, the hope from NATO and from the United States was very much that it would take time so that you could put some distance between the withdrawal and uh, and the fall of the Kabul government. And uh, now the government fell while U.S. soldiers and international security personnel were still in the country. And of course, that's a huge embarrassment to the world's main superpower and to the world's largest defense alliance. Yeah, and I mean... As well, there's no really real position for negotiations at this point. Um, but what, if anything, could have been done differently, do you think? Well, I think the first thing, I mean, you can go as far back as you want. I, <laughs> I would go back to 2001 and the intervention. I thought the intervention was a mistake to begin with, uh, uh, simply because the realism of succeeding was very, very low. There wasn't a will to do what it would take to succeed. Uh, then, once the intervention was done and the Taliban was a beaten force, there was absolutely no will to accommodate the Taliban or those who saw the Taliban as at least somewhat representative of their political interests. Then, the warfare in Afghanistan, including the warfare of the international forces, were such that you alienated a lot of people who were direct victims of that warfare. That stimulated support for the Taliban so they could start slowly to rebuild. We're now talking 2003, 2004. The government wasn't particularly receptive and jumped into a lot of conflict that appointed people who triggered more conflict as their representatives in various localities around the country. And then you had corruption uh, developing and a fairly dysfunctional government structure. In addition to that, you had the old warlords whose uh, human rights record and everything else was about equally dismal as the human rights record of the Taliban appointed to to key positions. So many of the international community's interlocutors throughout these 20 years are what I would not hesitate for a second to say pure war criminals, many of them. Mm. And a lot of people are asking, was this all a waste? I mean, the U.S. has spent one, two trillion dollars, depending on the way you count it, um, Norway as well has been involved in Afghanistan um, pretty significantly. Was it a waste? I mean, you did just say that you you feel that the intervention in 2001 was a mistake. Um, again, though, as you pointed out, we can we can go to various points in history. Um, but but what do you think? 
Well, I certainly think it was a failure. Um, this was a war that was lost. The largest superpower in the world got to demonstrate that uh, with all the military equipment and uh, the military competence and, the large, and, and a large army and a large air force, uh, you still lost to a ragtag army of religious students uh, from the Afghan countryside. That is a huge embarrassment. And of course, it does something to the status of the US in the world and the effect of their power projection elsewhere. That being said, it is possible to have a slightly more positive take on it than to say that at least for 20 years, a window of opportunities was opened up in Afghanistan where women had access to work life, to uh, education, including higher education, civil society, uh, thrived, media thrived. And all of that is true. Uh, but, of course, the fact is that those people who stuck their necks out throughout these 20 years are now the ones that are also the most at risk. Those who could uh, have already left the country, but a lot of people, as we see those days in scenes from the Kabul airport where they are unable to get on a plane to exit Afghanistan, they are they are desperate. They are very afraid of what is coming. They, they, they think that the Taliban may be, um, may be coming for them. Yeah, it's been um, terrible, terrible scenes, especially today and yesterday at the airport with people very desperate to to get out. Um, some people have said or speculated that the U.S. could go back in, but President Biden has been very, very clear that that's not going to happen. Um, the headline in the Washington Post was, Defiant and defensive, a president known for empathy takes a cold-eyed approach to Afghanistan debacle. Um what is it about this situation that sort of unites Americans? And I want to talk more about the international community after this, but of course the U.S. is so instrumental in this. So, I mean, the polling shows that Americans do not want to be involved in Afghanistan anymore. How has that situation changed politically in the last 20 years? Well, when the U.S. intervened in Afghanistan in 2001, it was just in the aftermath of the terror attacks in New York and Washington on 11th of September of course, that was uh, one of the most traumatic events in uh, in recent uh, American history. So there was wide support for going after the Taliban, not only to penalize them for having um, hosted Al-Qaeda, who produced the attack, but also simply out of a sheer need of setting the record straight, pure revenge, so to say. Uh, that is a long while ago. Uh, the costs of the war have been immense. A lot of people have been affected. Many U.S. lives have gotten lost. And not the least, it doesn't seem that one is making headway. In fact, things have been moving in the wrong direction for many, many years. The situation in Afghanistan has gone from fairly optimistic in the first years after 2001 to now a dismal situation with increasing poverty, increasing insecurity. The Afghan Afghanistan has been the most deadly conflict in the world for the past three years. Most people don't know this, but it's actually produced as many casualties as Yemen and, and Syria combined over the past three years. So it's been a dismal situation. So it's not like the pullout is is replacing an awful situation with something that's necessarily even worse. Uh, we may see stability stability under a regime that many of us would not sympathize with. But for many Afghans who've been living in the middle of a, a war that may still, in some ways, uh, constitute progress. Mm. 
And of course, this isn't just about the U.S., it's about the international community in general relating to, yeah, what looks like a new regime in Afghanistan. I guess my question is, a lot of people have said that various countries need to take some responsibility, take in refugees, especially people, as you were mentioning, who might be specifically targeted by the Taliban. So this is kind of a a two-part question. The first is, what responsibility does the international community have? And the second question is, how should or can the international community relate to this new government, I guess we will have to call it, um, because things are changing so so quickly and it, on the ground it's very dangerous for a lot of civilians. Well, when it comes to the people who are now at risk, I think there is a strong argument to may, be made for the responsibility of the states that have been involved in the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we have produced, uh, and I say we without taking responsibility for the intervention, uh, produced a situation in which a lot of people have been invited to, to take risks, to es- expose themselves, and uh, know that uh, NATO, uh, you, the US and its allies are leaving, those people are facing real risks. Uh, and they are the ones that have been, in a sense, uh, uh, going in front for the very values that it is that the West has wanted Afghanistan to to adopt. So the responsibility is uh, huge, but I see less will to accept that responsibility. Many states, uh, including Norway, are willing to uh, are willing to open up for asylum to people who have worked with the international with the military forces or potentially with the uh, diplomatic personnel in Afghanistan, but all those others, those who have worked for NGOs who have uh, been at the front of the human rights battle, uh, women organizations, they don't get similar opportunities and they're equally, if not more, at risk. And I find that uh, I find that very problematic. Mm. And I mean, uh, last year, Biden, when he was asked whether the U.S. had any responsibility and specifically to women and girls, he said, I quote, no, I don't. Do I bear responsibility? Zero responsibility. The idea of us being able to use our armed forces to solve every single internal problem that exists in the world is just not within our capacity. And I mean, I think those are those are two different things. One is about military intervention. The other is about is there some kind of responsibility? Has Biden changed his view on this or is the U.S. taking a pretty hard line against protecting those people that are at risk now? I mean, there is a logic to Biden's argument. I think he's right that uh, U.S. military might cannot produce the situation where the rights of women, or for that matter, uh, minorities or what have you not, uh, are guaranteed. But uh, this was the very pretext on which uh, in, on which the U.S. intervened uh, in the first place. Mm. So... At least what Biden is doing is to take a step back and say, well, I hear why the U.S., how the U.S. justified its intervention, but I'm not standing in for that. I think that was a mistake. He doesn't say it that way, but there's no other way of interpreting what he's saying. Right. And so then uh, going to my the second part of my question, how can the international community relate to this situation as it develops and also stabilizes, presumably? Well, the assumption is that Afghanistan, that the Taliban are very eager to have international support. And I think that is true. They have said as much. Uh, and right now, we see the international community teaming up to put pressure on the Taliban in order to respect human rights, uh, not conduct revenge killings, treat prisoners of war decently, 
not backtrack too far on women's rights, on the, the space for civil society and so forth. But I also take it for granted that the Taliban will not be fully responsive to all of those demands. So I think it's now going to be entering a very, very difficult period, a period where delicate diplomacy will be needed, because much as I sympathize with the pressure to affect Taliban behavior and the way that the Taliban sets up its political practices as they move forward, I also don't. I also see that there is a need to maintain open lines of communication with the Taliban. The worst situation imaginable is one that is reminiscent of what we had in the latter part of the 1990s, where those lines were basically shut down and uh, there was no way in which you not, could communicate with the Taliban. There was no way in which you could meaningfully even try to affect uh, their behavior. And that's that's the worst thing imaginable. That would even possibly close off most of the humanitarian support that so many Afghans depend on for their livelihoods now. My final question is, is this pretty much a foregone conclusion um, that the Taliban are going to have control of Afghanistan? I mean, um, the president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. I think that sends a pretty clear message Um but are there any other alternatives that you can imagine? Well, I had hoped that we would be able to, that we would get to a, a sort of negotiated solution where the Taliban would invite other people into the government, perhaps technocrats, set up some sort of a transitional administration. Now, they clearly rejected that and went directly for the big win. Uh, raised the Taliban banner at the presidential palace in Kabul and declared the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So no inclusion there. Uh, that, I think, sends a very, very uh, unfortunate signal because that may imply that that is the way they are heading. And as the Taliban themselves have argued repeatedly recently, one of the big mistakes that... Uh, multiple groups in Afghanistan has done over the past several decades is that they have tried to monopolize power. But if you monopolize power, then you also alienate big parts of the populations. And through that, you uh, you saw the seeds of the next generation of conflict. Uh, and that is, that is the really sad part of the current situation, that uh, unless the Taliban is able to take a step, step back, despite its full victory in uh, military terms and... Uh, be more inclusive than they were in the past. Uh, I think we're just uh, we should just lean back and wait for for the next rounds of uh, armed conflict in Afghanistan. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigaver. Music by Martin Dunham.